1: This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Houghton Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer.
2: I am excited to hear y'all's thoughts on this. This is a key question, I think, for readers. Um, and it's one that I circle back to sometimes. And sometimes I'm I'm not actually quite sure what I think about this question. So this will be interesting. How do you determine if a novel is good? And there's some air quotes there. How do you determine if a novel is good morally and stylistically?
1: Yeah, I get asked this a lot. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, part of the question is whether those end up becoming the same thing or not.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: Because if a novel is poor stylistically, are you being so affected by the form that the content can't overwrite it? Does that make sense? Oh, hundred
3: percent. It does. And for, for me, while I can appreciate kind of the postmodern approach to novel writing I don't tend to recommend really experimental novels. Um, Oh, that's debatable. uh, Yeah, no, it's certainly debatable. um, And it's not that I haven't had experimental, more kind of postmodern inflected novels that have meant a lot to me. But when I'm just recommending books to most folks that ask me for a book, I feel um, that we're still, most of us, so formed in kind of a linear way of thinking, for better or for worse uh that um more experimental form can be almost a non-starter for people that i'm trying to initiate into uh, a deeper love for reading um that's not that's not 100 the case uh but but most folks i know of that haven't done a lot of reading uh within the church if you point them directly to a book that's really playing with the form to where it's just so all over the place um uh I've I've had them come back and say, you know, I I couldn't I couldn't get anywhere with that book. And um and have never come back and asked for another one.
0: Hmm.
1: I wonder if that's the case of those novels just not being strong in the form. So for example, I'm thinking of things like Loris or um, you know, the the holy fool story by Vodolashkin or Godric by Frederick Beekner that are purposefully messing with linear time to get you to think more about eternal time. Mm. So the entire experience of the novel wants to throw you off because to be thrown off is to move, like to ascend in your ways of thinking about time. Whereas so much of us forget that time is a creation, forget that time is a created thing, that it's not the world that we're actually made for. We're made for a world outside of time. And you need fiction to make you uncomfortable. Now, that might mean that like people have to have a guide towards something that is that good. So I, I'm not talking about novels that are just... They have no meaning behind it. And they're trying for this kind of originality where they just throw you off. And they're experimental to be experimental. Like, there's not a higher meaning behind the experiment. Because that, to me, isn't good. But if there's meaning behind the experiment, right... Then that can be a stylistic good that's also a moral good.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people actually are attracted to experimental form in reading. Like it's sort of this novel, you know, this this new thing. So it's a it's a, it's sort of a because um, uh, sometimes can be a gimmick. But when I when I think about you know is is a novel good stylistically, I usually get really pragmatic, and it's maybe it's related to this sort of form question too, where it's like anything that like pulls me out of the story. And that sort of alerts me to like the fact that, oh, this is, you know, I, I'm I'm not immersed in the world. Mm-hmm. Like if I read a sentence and I just think to myself, I could have, I, I maybe could have written a better sentence than that. Mm-hmm. Then, then I know there's like, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe related to form, if it's just so bizarre and confusing. And maybe to use your term, Jessica, it feels purposelessness. Mm -hmm. Like it has, it it just has no, like, this is not happening for any reason. Then to me, it's like, how can this be good? Because it doesn't even work. Like it's not, it's not leading me up to anything. It's just like, it it just happened. Mm -hmm. So, so I think about that. Um, I, I, also, I've mentioned, I think, in some of our other conversations, my enjoyment of Richard Wright um, and and an author whose novels are, you know, really brutal and kind of very violent. Um, But there's there I think there's a purpose. There's purpose that's happening there. It's not just sort of these depictions for the sake of these depictions. That's another thing that I think about. Like there was a popular novel called The Magicians, I think by maybe lev grossman is the author's name oh, Yeah, I've heard of that. i think it became a tv show um and it's sort of like pitched as harry potter for adults and i remember reading the first one and just thinking this 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 is a different i read richard wright and i was like i can't handle this stuff like there's just something different about this the way this novel is dealing with these like kind of human brokenness that feels mm-hmm. um that almost feels like it's enjoying it. I don't know. And so, so I can't quite put, I wondered how, how do you all deal with that sort of question? Like, how do you, how do you deal with the sort of the subject matter and the the kind of the the morality piece? I'm sure that's something people ask you all the time.
1: Yeah. If, if, so I, Austin, I definitely want you to comment, but I'm going to just jump in because I'm thinking of something specific based on what you just said with, with right. When I used to read Morrison, I felt the way that you just explained about Grossman.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: So much about her perspective and experience and worldview that I didn't understand that she made me uncomfortable. So when I used to teach Beloved, it was actually the novel I struggled the most to teach in a Southern Lit course because I'm like... I just don't understand it. And it feels really dark and it feels really horrible. And I, I hate any story that talks about children dying, like Dante, I don't care what story it is. Mm. Children dying is really hard for me in fiction. It's just very visceral. And so that novel, I just couldn't, I couldn't teach. It was, I did, I taught it over and over again, but I was struggling with it. And I would say only in the last five or six years, maybe uh, that I have changed my way of reading her. And I I know it's been informed by nonfiction, right? Like reading um, the cross and the lynching tree, reading Jesus and the disinherited, you know, reading a lot of books, nonfiction that helped me understand Morrison's fiction. And then I could see the purpose behind it. Whereas just the reading experience, I was missing it.
2: So we continue to return to purpose, right? And being yeah. able to discern that and sense that in the reading. Yeah. Austin, What what are your thoughts?
3: Well, yeah, I love this whole conversation because there, I'm thinking of it on two levels, you know, and, and the first question as I kind of answered it, it was on the level of thinking about the individual person you're talking to that you're recommending a book to, mm-hmm. um, and, and where they are kind of in their reading journey and and what you kind of sense they're looking for. I think those are important elements in how we answer this question. Um, but then similarly, then, is um, the, the other level of just in general, you know, what makes for, in our opinion, you know, a, a, a stylistically effective novel, which is different than what is somebody at their kind of stage in reading going to, you know, um, take to. And and so then the question of, of, of what, what makes for, you know, just a, an effective and, and, and good kind of moral novel. I think that here, a lot of this for me is about reading with a charitable spirit. Um, because there are lots of things that if we're hopefully curious readers, we're going to read that to your point, Jessica, because of our own lived experience, we're going to be reading outside of our own to where we're just going to feel disoriented. It's it just, we, we don't have our moorings. Um, and, um, and so I, I do think that that the posture toward which we as readers come to a book helps us answer this question. Um, because something that that could seem obscene or immoral might not be obscene or immoral mm-hmm. or or something that, that feels threatening, might not be something threatening, it might be something that we really need, but that we're just not ourselves yet, you know, braced and prepared to fully be able to appreciate and if we're reading without a charitable spirit, we just close it and put it away and say it's obscene or, or, or threatening or, or immoral when probably we ought to interrogate what is that about and where we really mm-hmm. kind of open readers uh, for that. Um, and and so this touches on something that's very important to me as a pastor when it comes to reading, which is that you can take a risk as a pastor recommending certain books to folks because uh, different people have a, a, an anticipation and expectation for what their pastoral leaders might be reading what they're going to recommend and there have been times i've recommended things that have really kind of um provoked or troubled people um but i would never do that if i didn't feel like underneath the the content that is um going to be challenging and troublesome there's something really important to learn about human nature there and something that's really important to learn about Uh, the lived experience of others and ultimately underneath all of that, then the complexity of reality and therefore, you know, the complexity of, 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 of God's creation. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot in that, that kind of rambling answer I gave, but I do want to underscore in it that um, there's, there's a question of what is kind of objectively moral and what's not. um, But that has to always be in dialogue with the question of subjectively what kind of a spirit and openness you know am, am I bringing as a reader to to the to the book in question?
1: Yeah I would totally agree. I think it has a lot to do with the virtue of the reader to be able to mm-hmm. see what's good. At, at the same time I, I love the question because I think we're getting at something about purpose because even Austin, you said if the reader is virtuous and charitable but is still troubled by the work, then you get to assess is the troubling, in the case for Claude with Grossman, not purposeful or the troubling as it was my case with Morrison, purposeful. And I need to go through that scandal as the, you know, the way that the New Testament sometimes uses the word and the way I use the word is it scandalized me into a better way of reading.
2: Yeah. That is a good, um, a good last word and a really rich conversation. I've been helped by this and, um, yeah, insightful. Stay tuned for a insightful and good interview.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. In the book, Barr shows that the biblical womanhood isn't biblical, but was born in a clearly definable historical moment, and she presents a better way forward for the contemporary church. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. I am eager to talk this morning with Mary McCampbell, who is the author of Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourself. Just to completely give away my bias, I actually endorsed the book, so I wanted to have this conversation not just about Mary's book, but also about one of the books that she talks about in here, because we both wrote on Graham Green's The Power and the Glory, and so I thought she'd be a great person to kind of bring along with us as we talk about this novel. So I want to, I want to start first and ask Mary, would you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not be familiar with your work?
4: Yes. Thank you, Jessica. I'm, I'm so excited to, to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, and I am, um, associate professor of humanities at Lee university in Cleveland, Tennessee, not Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, this is my 13th year there, I think. And, um, Yes. I just, a book came out in April and I mean, mainly I wanted to write this book because of the conversations I was having with students in the classroom and seeing how much their close reading and their close engagement with the arts could really help them to become more empathetic. And of course, I've also seen that a lot in my life too. So um yeah, but my, my my area of specialization, I did my doctorate in Newcastle in the UK, and my area of specialization tends to be kind of um, contemporary literature, very contemporary literature. Uh, my focus was on the author Douglas Copeland. But mm-hmm. contemporary literature and um, the- theology and theory, you know, kind of those things all together. And so I do tend to teach a lot of both contemporary literature, but I'm also very interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So I really love, you know, also teaching film and popular culture and music. I like to see all these things work together. So interestingly, The Power and the Glory, although I, I mean, I, I love 20th century literature, but I tend to write more on much more contemporary, mm-hmm. literature. you know, since like 1980. Right. Um but it's still, you know, my favorite novel is Jane Eyre. And that was no <laughs> novel. But it's just yeah. like, you know, if you, you know how it is, if you love literature, you love literature. Right. You have sometimes area that, you know, I'm very driven to, um, contemporary lit just, just cause I'm, I'm very curious about wanting to understand how contemporary thinkers, um, you know, understand the religious impulse mm. and about it, especially coming from non Christians. But, but yeah, Graham Greene. Mm. You know,
1: well, yeah. What did what drew you to Green? I mean, I know my own story. In graduate school, I was studying Catholic literature, so my, like, mm. of course, I'm going to come ac- across Green. And we were doing it across the world, so it was Bernanos and and then Green and Wad. I mean, primarily men. And I'm just now discovering that there's actually a lot of Catholic women writers that I did <laughs> get to read when I was studying the 20th century. But I think that I read it so much as an academic book, you know, because it was assigned that I didn't really get to the heart of it until I read it again on my own as part of a women's book club. It was being led by well-read moms. And mm. I just thought, this is, I'm reading this from a completely different place. And I, I fell in love with it. I don't know what your experience was uh. for reading the novel.
4: Um, I never read any green in college mm. or graduate school ever um but i'd heard uh, actually the the first what drew me to this novel was i don't i don't i used to help organize this wonderful gathering called the festival of faith and music not the writing one but the music oh, one okay um at calvin because you know, i taught there a few years and then i just kept even after i left i kept working with it and one year i think it was greg wolf spoke and he quoted you know the very famous quote from here about hate being a failure of imagination yes I don't know that really that really captured me Mm -hmm. and I really was so drawn so I sort of read the novel because I heard the quote wow okay I wanted to know um and then green in general I I have um I teach a class on the Christian imagination and I don't know how somehow I chose the end of the affair, which I think I might like even better. Yes. It's really good. I love that one. And I've taught that one a few times. Yeah. Um, Gorgeous. So yeah. So, but that's really, yeah. But my first entry into green, I mean, I've had friends who really like him, but I've never Mm -hmm. had not read, but it was only about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago that I actually yeah. picked up So writing. So writing.
1: Well, and you start, you actually start with that quote. I'm going to give the longer version of it, but your book begins with Green's quote. The quote begins, when you visualized a man or woman carefully, you could always begin to feel pity. That was a quality God's image carried with it. When you saw the lines at the corner of the eyes, the shape of the mouth, how the hair grew, it was impossible to hate. Hate was just a failure of the imagination. Would you be willing to maybe set up the the scene where the priest makes this observation and then and then talk about why you started your work this way?
4: Yes. I mean, I would just, I would want to um, say, well, the, the power and the glory is set. I'm terrible with dates, Jessica. What's the time period?
1: 19. Well, it's a, written in the 1940s and Green was actually researching the Catholic persecution of the 1940s. Yeah.
4: So, but what were the date, like in the twenties, thirties? I thought it was the
1: thirties, the early thirties. So it was around, yeah. Cause he's, he was researching there and he was going to do a journalistic piece on it. And then it turned into this 1940 novel, but he was researching during the thirties. Yeah. I knew,
4: I knew that it was written in the forties, but I couldn't remember the exact dates of yeah. the persecution because yeah, this is the side of me that I don't remember those things. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a time period you know, in Mexican history when, um, when Catholicism was basically outlawed, punishable Mm -hmm. by death. And, um, if you were a priest, you either had to, uh, leave the country or, um, assimilate, which there's Mm -hmm. another priest in the book, Father Jose, Mm -hmm. um, who assimilates, you know, marries, has a family, gives up his faith. Um, or, you know, you have to renounce your face or do what the, the central character in the novel, who has no name, but we call him the, the whiskey priest, right. um, does. You go underground. Yes. Uh, but there's a, so the whole novel, you know, he's underground. He's doing these illegal, um, saying illegal mass Mm-hmm. You know, hearing a legal confession, but at this point he is in a prison cell and it's ironic because he wasn't arrested for being a priest. They still didn't know he was a priest. <laughs> he was arrested for having, was it some sort of illegal brandy? Right. He had
1: brandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um,
4: yeah. So, excuse me. And he's in the prison cell and um, he encounters this pious woman. That's the way she's described. And I was going to find it. Green Green writes he had always been worried by the fate of pious women as much as politicians they fed on illusion, <laughs> mm. um, and he goes on and talking about you know that how piety pious women and it really makes you think of uh, Flannery O'Connor and her critique of yes. this kind of religiosity, and so there's this pious woman who again is just very judgmental and self righteous and mean.
1: Yes, but and
4: she's it. in prison. She's in prison. I know. She's in prison. But she tells him she she's listening to him and she's judging him. And she's at one point she knows he's an alcoholic. She she knows you know all of this problem these problems. And she says, It'd be the sooner you're dead, the better.
1: Yeah. You
4: know, like, we don't need any priests like you. And I think he says this in his mind. Because his, of course, anyone's knee jerk reaction to that would be to bite back, you know, or to just hate her or just, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody tells you I want you to die.
1: Right.
4: Um, But he pauses and he notices the image of God in her Mm -hmm. and then he begins to pity her and then he actually says he's responsible for her. And that's also where it reminds me a lot of O'Connor, like a good man is hard to find. At the end, when mm-hmm. the grandmother realizes she's responsible for the misfits, yeah. Uh, so it's that very, very difficult empathy mm-hmm. that drew me in.
1: Yeah. Well, that and that's a Dostoevskian idea that they're they're both really influenced by Dostoevsky because in the Brothers Karamazov, the father's SMS says we're responsible for all. And that, that kind of mentality, I think, was life-altering for both Green and for O'Connor, this idea that we're responsible for all. Yes. What does that mean? Yeah. And, and yet we have this character who is a wretch. I mean, you, you we call him the Whiskey Priest. He doesn't actually have a name that differentiates him from other priests. The only key thing we know about him is that he drinks too much. He cares too much about the things of this world. He's constantly out for his own skin and himself. I mean, he wants to board the boat to get away, but he does go when he hears that someone needs him. And when there is a role for the priest to play, he does obey his vocation. So why do you think we have this? Yeah. What? I
4: said he goes, but he hates it. He's like resisting. He he just...
1: Yeah, I keep saying like unvolitionally, unwillingly, like he is, you know, he is always being drawn a kind of against his lusts and desires for his own life and his own good, but he keeps doing it. Yeah. You know, there's this, this faithfulness even in the midst of his sin, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, (laughs) but, but why do you, why do you think that green creates him this way? Like he could have created a good saint. We could have watched a completely different story and witnessed a character who showed a holy foolishness or a good faith. Like why do we have the whiskey priest instead?
4: Yeah, I think that's, well, I I'm also think, it, in relating to that, I'm, I'm thinking about how much he was influenced by um, Shizako Endo.
1: Yeah. No,
4: no, Shizako Endo was influenced Great. by him. Sorry about that. Yeah. other Other never mind, never mind. Yeah. I was going to say how interesting that is. That's a whole side note, though, that you see Shizako Endo doing very similar things in silence. But um, I, I think... I don't know that I feel like there's something there's something so human of course about the whiskey priest mm-hmm. and of course also it's important to mention that he has a he has a daughter he has an illegitimate mm-hmm. child um that you know so that's another who bad and he feels guilty because he doesn't even regret that he has the daughter because right. he loves the daughter I, I, I feel like on some levels, a lot of his theology is actually kind of quite legalistic um, mm-hmm. in some of his way of thinking. Uh, but yeah, I, I think what, Grant, what Green is showing us is this is a man who does not check the boxes of what a priest should be or a saint or any kind of Christian trying to live the life of Christ, trying to be holy at the same time, he has such empathy and he, he continually goes back to how important it is to see the image of God in other people mm-hmm. and does have that pity. Um, yeah. I, I feel like, well, there was a, there was a description in here and now I have all these pages marked, but I don't know which is which, <laughs> but I remember once uh, in one part, it talks about the pendulum swing inside mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like he, he really is a picture of, we don't do the things we want to do. We do the things that we, that we hate. Yes. Um, but interestingly with, with him, it's almost like, well, he doesn't even necessarily want to do these things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like he doesn't even, he wants to want to be holy, but he's so drawn the other direction. But so I think he's so interesting because he is so overtly sinful and he's very honest about his sinfulness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he seems to have gifting and he seems to have priestly gifting. Right. You know? He seems to have gifting of really seeing the, the glory and the wretchedness of other human beings and being able to um, t- t- to love them even against his own will. So I don't know, he's a very complicated character.
1: Right. Well, he reminds me so much of Old Testament characters because, or even I probably could draw some analogies with the New Testament apostles too, but with the Old Testament characters, you have all of these horrible judges that God keeps calling and yet God does amazing things through them, right? So, I mean, you just, Gideon is is the worst. Samson, I mean, none of them are good. Samson and Delilah, I mean, the whole story is about he keeps sleeping with the enemy. Like, it's just, and so when it comes to this understanding of what God is doing in the world and through people, I think too often what Green was seeing or trying to point out to us is that we focus on moralistic, we focus on those kind of, the piety that the woman in prison expects. Yes. And we want that kind of fake moralism to say what belief is, but belief is that no matter how bad you are, the Lord can do something amazing through you. Yes. Right. And so I think that that's what the priest witnesses to us is this, this same idea. And, and also he's a different priest from before the persecution to after it. Don't you think?
4: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's like anything that gave him a, a semblance, like if he was going to hinge his identity on being a priest, and if that meant all the social attachments mm-hmm. and all of the public righteous attachments, all of those things have been torn away. And the, I mean, there's something amazing that like, why does this man... He could so easily renounce his faith and get right. married. He could leave the country, but he keeps hanging on because he feels that he has been called to do this yes. as much as he doesn't even like it most of the time. And there's something right. really, I mean, he's her, he's heroic in spite of himself.
1: Yes. Yes. Because, because of obedience, not yes. because of his own virtue. And, I think of Paul, that's why I was going to draw this New Testament reference too. When you imagine Paul, there's so much heroism that we focus on in his later years. But when you go back to who he was as Saul, it's kind of like the whiskey priest pre-persecution. There was a place of esteem. He had, you know, all of the, he talks about this, right, in the letters in which, he had all of the markers of being a good Jew. He was a great Pharisee. He followed the law. He was the best of the best. He was, it was a performative faith and he excelled at it. And he made it to the top, even to the point where like the lieutenant in Graham Greene's novel, he was willing to persecute in order to save the church, right? To, to save what he thought was right. He was willing to do violence. Right. And allow, you know, Stephen to be martyred, to go into people's homes, to arrest Christians. And it's not until Christ calls him to suffer for his name. Mm. That's the call that the Lord gives Ananias when it comes to Paul is I want you to teach him how much he will suffer for my name. And that's what yeah. happens to the whiskey priest. He has a place of power and prestige in the community. The persecution comes and he learns how much he must suffer for Christ's name and it makes him into a different person.
4: Yeah. Yes, it does novel.
1: because yeah, I'm just
4: thinking about, I mean, it's, it's probably not good to go so far to the end already, but mm-hmm. I'm just think, Um, mm-hmm. I'm just, there's a, one quote that to me relates so much to what we're both saying. It's right at the end where he's about to, I mean, spoiler alert, yes. it's kind of an old book, but yeah. <laughs> he's going to be ex finally he gets caught and he's going to be executed and of course he doesn't ever feel worthy of these things being a martyr but at the end he talks about he saw his own shadow in the on the wall and he says he felt only an immense disappointment because he had to go to god empty-handed with nothing done at all and i wrote down you know in my notes but don't we all isn't that the point that he he can't make himself into a saint you know like the idea that at the end his final revelation which he thinks is a failure yes is i'm going to god empty-handed with nothing
1: to show right right and it's it's actually the greatest act of humility that he exhibits over the course of the whole novel I think it's one of the only indications that he could be holy is that moment where he feels like a failure because he's empty handed. It's an acknowledgement of his nothingness. Yes. Just so beautiful. Uh, George Bernanos, right. The diary of a country priest, that priest says, Oh miracle of empty hands that we are able to give what we ourselves do not possess. Wow. And that's so, and you know, of course, green is really influenced by Bernanos. This idea of the empty handedness, he turns into, a different image with the whiskey priest, seeing it as a failure, as you put it, right? Yes. So he recognizes the necessity of being a saint.
4: And what, well, but the thing is that at the end here, when he says that, and I guess that's where you said the, the act of the most humility mm-hmm. is that he, he doesn't even recognize, I mean, to me, that's still sad because it's like, he doesn't even recognize, but that's exactly where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Like we recognize it, but does he actually recognize it yeah he just thinks oh you know i've blown it right uh um but we think no no that's isn't this the point of the whole book isn't this isn't this what we're we're supposed to understand so
1: well and that but i think that's the beauty this is what i talk about with flannery o'connor all the time you mentioned a good man is hard to find that moment at the end where the grandmother reaches out her hand she has the revelation she has the reality i'm responsible for you i've made you what you are and then she falls into the ditch in this like cruciform posture but she's dead mm-hmm. and everyone laments the ending of this novel because she dies right at the moment she has this epiphany about god but o'connor is challenging us to do we actually believe in her revelation do we believe yeah. that that's right that that's true that that's the answer that's the same question that's being posed to us right I mean yeah. we we witness his murder martyr, martyrdom do we believe that the only thing in life is to be a saint the, the same epiphany yeah. that he has and that we have to come to that within mm-hmm. the hands right yeah. it's the and, effect on the reader
4: yeah I mean and that that makes me think of it in good man is hard to find when she's over in the ditch after she's been shot. And it says she looks up and she looks like a child. Yes. And you think about, it's that moment of, I mean, yeah, a kind of rebirth or kind of, you know, she has, she's in a, she's in a state of kind of almost childlike wonder. It's yeah. not innocence, but it's, it's a point of, I have nothing to give. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just a point of being stripped bare. Well, the, as the the misfit says, You know, she'd been a good woman if there's someone there to shoot her every day of her life. So maybe with the whiskey priest, he'd be a good man if there was someone there to.
1: And that's what happens. He finally becomes a good man because every day of his life during the persecution, those are the days where a gun is always aimed at him. Yes. And only when the gun is aimed at him in those final days, does he move from being this fat, lustful, alcoholic priest to someone who actually desires the love of God and desires the life of sanctity, right? It's a complete transition for him.
4: That's right? so interesting. It makes me think of, um, a John Donne poem. And now I can't remember, of course, that they don't have names. It's just Holy Sonnet number something. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember it because, uh, the welcome wagon do a, a, a version of it, a song. And the, the line that Vito in the song repeats over and over is mm-hmm. those are my best days when I'm shake with fear. Oh yeah. And it, it, that, you know, that it's, it's the, the fear. I mean, he's talking about the fear of the Lord. Right. You know, realizing your unworthiness. Um, and they are those the best days?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I have to read that passage where he talks about the fear of the Lord then. The, oh, the priest is in that conversation with the lieutenant Yes. and he's finally been caught and they're having that dialogue and they're having it out about who's right. Uh, and the Lieutenant sounds very much like Dostoevsky's grand inquisitor. I think that, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but, but the priest says, God is love, but we wouldn't recognize that love. It might even look like hate. It would be enough to scare us. God's love. It set fire to a bush in the desert, didn't it? and smashed open graves and set the dead walking in the dark. Oh, a man like me would run a mile to get away if he felt that love around. Mm. Doesn't it just give you chills? Yes. Right. It's a, it's just a, it's a fearful, like fear and trembling kind of love that he has been experiencing that he is able to then put before the Lieutenant in a way that we saw him preach earlier in the novel, and he was horrible at preaching. <laughs> you know, he didn't know what he was talking about. And now, without even trying, his honest perspective on who God is is relaying the truth. Finally, you yeah. see he and and he talks earlier about not having the eyes of a saint, but here we get to hear this vision. He's like, oh, he finally has the eyes of a saint. I yeah, think. and
4: he's 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 very persistent in holding. He, he talks about. Um, I don't know, earlier in the novel, he says he feels like he only has the bat, the, the little outlines of the mystery oh, because he's, he's not connected to any of the schooling and the books and all the education. Mm-hmm. But he just sees the shadowy outline. Again, O'Connor, what's the yeah. shadowy man <laughs> jumping in the back of your head? Nice. But um, the shadowy outline, I can't remember the way he says it, but yeah, I, I, it's almost like the more he gets away from the way he's supposed to be, according to, um, uh, the outline of, you know, a, a, a priest, right. um, it's like the more he's, he's not dependent on his own actions and his yes. own education. Right. That. But then I love that about the love of God. Can you just read that last part again? <laughs> That's so beautiful. I remember the first time I read that, that I was just like, Oh, I have to yeah. pause a minute.
1: It would be enough to scare us, God's love. It set fire to a bush in the desert, didn't it? And smashed open graves and set the dead walking in the dark. Oh, a man like me would run a mile to get away if he felt that love around. Yeah.
4: Exactly the fear of God, like he knows his unworthiness. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> so different
4: than the priest who feels like they, you know, have everything under control. Yeah
1: it brings a whole new perspective to the Christ haunting that is so prevalent in the South. This is a completely different idea of Christ haunting you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he becomes a saint at the end? I know green is trying to show that he could, I mean, he's trying to show all these miracles and green does this in the end of the affair too, right? He tries tries to show the character had miracles. The character did things that would allow them to be canonized.
4: Yeah. I don't know. And I mean, the question is, you know, does it matter? Right. I, I think that. I think that in the end he is he is saved. I don't know if he means he's a saint or by that, you know, because of saintly sainthood has to do with, you know, holiness of life. Mm-hmm. And what does that even mean? Um, right. And so maybe Graham Greene is redefining what a holy life looks like. It's not what you do necessarily, well, I I don't know. It's not, it's not, you know, doing the right things. It's knowing your unworthiness, knowing, Mm. you know, knowing as Pascal would say, knowing your wretchedness.
1: Mm. I
4: mean, this is a character very in touch with his own wretchedness Um, to the point of despair a lot, you know, which, uh, so I don't know what to think about that. What do you think?
1: But despair that doesn't, doesn't like, hinder him from becoming faithful or staying faithful. Yes. I think that's the important part is to become aware of your wretchedness, but also aware of God's holiness, because if you have awareness of both of those things, then you know, through God's holiness, your wretchedness has meaning.
4: Yes. Yeah. That's what I think Pascal says, um, says that, uh, knowing God without knowing your wretchedness leads to pride.
1: Hmm.
4: Um, and knowing your wretchedness without knowing God leads to despair. Yes. There
1: you go. You know, that's
4: that's, uh, yeah. That's, that's what's he know. Like he, he never doubts the existence of God does mm-hmm. he never doubts mm-hmm. his unworthy. It's like, it's, it's like, this is just the way this is the, not. this is the order of the universe and his place in it. And he knows his unworthiness.
1: Right.
4: What he doubts is himself and his abilities. Um, But do you think he became a saint?
1: I do. But I think that that's, I think that's Green's intention. But also, you know, like you said, does it matter? It's kind of like when you get to the end of an O'Connor story too, the question isn't whether the character becomes holy or becomes a saint or is saved. The question is, have you yourself grown in sanctity by reading this story, right? Have you glimpsed who God is and how to love your neighbor through reading this story? And those are the things that to me matter most. I mean, when I wrote on this, I was writing for a desire for holiness that I found when I was reading this, it made me desire holiness more.
4: Yes. Which I
1: think is that is the point.
4: But do we do, do we think though that green, because, you know, green was quite a rascal in his own life. (laughs) And and I'm just, I mean, he was, the end of the affair is pretty autobiographical. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, is this a way, is he kind of, you know, in a way it's to, we just ignore all the priests Mm -hmm. sins, Mm -hmm. um, if a life of holiness, it isn't just, oh, well, I know I'm unworthy, so I'll go ahead and do all these terrible things.
1: Right.
4: You know, uh, but I don't know, the priest doesn't necessarily do that. He,
1: no, he's, he's actually unholy before the persecution and he moves through the suffering and persecution to become holy. It's, it's those things which change him. They actually keep him from doing, you know, he's addicted to alcohol, but they keep him from a lot of the sins he experienced when he was a fat, happy priest.
4: Yeah. 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 And And it's so interesting to me that he feels guilty for loving his own child because Mm -hmm. he feels like he should, see her and realize as a result of she's a result of sin yet so yet he he feel and again this is a kind of weird weird theology legalism he feels you know shouldn't i shouldn't i not want to love her and not want to um, so it's really interesting that even some of his very sins lead to things that are really beautiful, yeah. like his child, and we see a, a real love for his child, right? it does seem to have changed him. So that's also another aspect.
1: Yeah, no, I think that he is, I do think he is called to holy acts that are done in spite of himself. But I don't think that it is permitting him to keep on sinning. I think that that actually is a ch- like a change, like a, mm-hmm. a way that he transforms over the course of the novels that he's moving from sin to love. And he did live a very sinful life. But but you your questions that you're bringing up are the same questions that the Vatican had when they yeah. came into the novel when it came out was like, are we just saying that all priests are bad and that, it doesn't matter what you do and you can keep on sitting and then you get to be a saint at the end. Like there were the same kind of questions, but I think all great books give us those questions. It's not going to be, you have to wrestle with it. If you're not wrestling with it, I don't know how good of a book it is.
4: Yeah. I mean, again, looking at new, you know, figures in the new Testament, you know, looking at Matthew, the tax collector. And I mean, figures that I'm sure many around would be like him. Right. You want to, uh, (laughs) you want to, now of course they did renounce their life of sin and follow mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, right. different and, and we don't see such a straight path. Although look at Peter, whoa, he was a mess. Which right. I I love because it's it's the it's that pendulum swing of humanity, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's that ah you know, would would a actual saint be this kind of airbrushed, perfect mm-hmm. you know, figure.
1: Um, no, it's the. Re- I think it's the reality. I think the novel's able to tell the truth even better. I mean, I've argued better than hagiographies do.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a great. <laughs> I I think one part I just just saw this because I'm so interested in the kind of empathy aspect, right? That when he, I think one of his quote saving graces, what you just see that his. The good parts of his theology have really penetrated his entire being mm-hmm. um, and have, you know, have provided a way by which he sees the world. And because, you know, there's that the character the Mestizo that he just knows, he says, is Judas. This is a character that's following him around that he knows is there to turn him in and betray him. And he can't stand this man, but he feels like I'm called to love him. Yes, I'm called to see the image of God, even in him. Uh. And there's this quote um, says, but at the center of his own faith, there always stood the convincing mystery that we were made in God's image. Um, and he says, and he even talked about how impossible it was to, uh, deface. You know, he's talking. There's this one part here about how, um, smashing art images of God. But you couldn't actually ever really deface or smash the image of God mm-hmm. because this is a living part of a human being. Uh, I mean, it's just so. Again, but this is the whiskey priest. This is the messed up guy, and he's yeah. saying his thoughts, you really get in his thoughts, taking to this deep well Mm -hmm. of true belief and true love. Right. Because love, you know, I think he's also showing us that love is kind of an action. Like sometimes you have to force yourself to love. It's not just an easy, fuzzy feeling. It's not just, oh, I, you know, (laughs) I love who I feel like
1: loving. Right. Right. Well, you know, I was talking to uh, a friend yesterday because she was dealing with some idiots in her department, and she, oh, <laughs> you know, she's uh, she's the only woman in an all male department, and um, and they they were just saying things they shouldn't be saying, and she's like, how much crap do I put up with, and uh, how much do I have to keep putting up with before you know I just throw it all in and and leave this job and, and write my resignation letter, and. You know, I, I'm not perfect in responding to those issues. I have no idea what I would do in different situations, but at the same time, I did remind her, you know, even when you look at stories of Holocaust or persecution, it's amazing to me that the saints prayed for their persecutors, that they mm-hmm. prayed for the people that were hurting them because God could be doing something. So when you were talking yeah. about Gatizo and the fact that the saint knows or whiskey priest knows that this guy's going to do him wrong, that this, yeah. this person is going to end up hurting him. And yet he still tries to help him and love him and pray for him. Like how much then is God just calling us to love the idiots that are giving us a hard time <laughs> that we feel like it is difficult to put up with these people? <laughs> you and, know?
4: And, and, yes. In order for him. And this is where the, his imagination is so important. Hate being a figure is that he can act. He actually, he's actively working to see God's image And another human being, God's Mm -hmm. image is something who can, who of us can really describe what that even looks like? What is that about? Uh, You know, I mean, we know we could sit here and give a list of what it means that we're made in God's image. Um, You know, we, we, we have reason, we have emotions, we have all of these things, but all together, it's a mystery. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: And the fact that he is, has this imagination to always seek the mystery. Yes. uh is really amazing and a hard thing to do
1: (laughs) well i it's you know just to plug your book as we close like it is definitely the reason you wrote your book right is to train people to have that kind of imagination where hate is not the only option but love is a real possibility yes so
4: again it's a hard thing this is the hardest i think the love of enemies
1: very hard part Well, thank you for that good word, and thank you for talking about green this morning with me, and I hope people go out and get a copy of your book.
4: Oh, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.